Jordan Watermark. How are we doing? Yeah, speaking of outsiders, some of you are like, who's this guy? Who's this? He's a lot shorter than the other guys that typically teach. Yeah, he's got the, the little kid the little kid podium. Uh, my name is David Leventhal. I get the joy of getting to serve on the elder team with Dean and Bo and Todd and Brian. And uh, I'm excited to get to be with you this morning to share from God's word. By way of introduction, uh, my wife and I, Missy, are coming up on our 20th anniversary this September, so we're excited about that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, she's um, certainly gotten the better end of that 20 years. We have uh, seven kids. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we have seven kids, ages two to 15. Uh, God has brought five of them to us biologically and two through uh, adoption. And if that... Adoption, just as a side note, if that does anything for you or if you've wondered, hey, is adoption or foster care maybe for you? If you look on the back of your watermark news, we're gonna be kicking off Bruce Kendrick and his team will kick off another round of our introduction to adoption and foster care class. It's a seven-week class starting in August. So if that does anything for you, then we would love to have you jump in there. Um, getting to be a part of this local body is just a great joy. Getting to be under this teaching uh, has been awesome. I have thoroughly enjoyed the last four weeks as we've worked through this series called The Outsiders, in which we're using the Gospel of Luke, and we are looking at the way Jesus interacts with outsiders. And so JP and Adam have led us really well this last four weeks as we've looked at the way Jesus interacted with the tax collector, the sinful woman, uh, the garrison demoniac. And last week when JP led us through sort of the parable or uh, the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. And one of the reasons I think this series, at least for me, has been so encouraging is it has reminded me of the fact that I was once an outsider too. I once uh, had a Titus 3 life. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that passage. Titus 3, 3 to 5 says that we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, I was raised in a home where uh, Christ is exalted. My parents love the Lord. They've been walking with Jesus for half a century. They shared the gospel with me and my siblings the way that I share the gospel with my kids, that it is a gift of God. It is not by works that no one can boast, but the soil of my heart was just hard and uh, it never really took root. And so by the time I graduated from high school, I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of athletic success. And so I got the, the opportunity to go uh, wrestle at a school in Virginia called James Madison University. Any JMU Dukes out there, anybody? No? No? no. What if I said I went to Texas A&M? Would that do anything? Oh yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, so uh, I went to JMU to, to get to wrestle, which was a lot of fun. But when I stepped on campus, I was uh, just an arrogant, prideful, angry young man. And I was fully immersing myself in the things that I thought were gonna bring me life, the things uh, of the flesh. I was pursuing pleasures. Um, and I just thought I was crushing life. In fact, if you had told me, if if the mid-40s David could go back to the 18-year-old David and say, hey, just so you're aware, big guy, uh, down the road, you're gonna be working in uh, truck finance and trailer finance, 
You're gonna have seven kids and you will have spent the better part of the last two decades giving yourself to the local church. I would have been really discouraged. That would have been fairly underwhelming for me because I thought that I was just crushing life and I had the world in my hand because I thought that the things I was pursuing were giving me life until the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared. And in my life, he appeared through a couple of guys, Kevin Gilbart and Darren Spade, who saw me through a, a, a strange series of God-ordained events. I found myself second semester of my freshman year at college in a church. And I couldn't tell you the single thing that that pastor taught. I was busy looking around, trying to get my bearings. And when the service was over, these two guys came up to me. Now I knew these guys. They went to my high school. They were friends with my older sister. And I don't know if I was more surprised to see them in a church or if they were more surprised to see me in a church. See, these guys had come to know the kindness of their savior as well. They'd gotten saved. They'd come to know Jesus. And because of that, they were looking for outsiders who looked like they may not belong. And so they came up to me at that church and they said, hey, we are gonna be starting a freshman Bible study. Do you wanna be a part of it? And I was thinking, no. I don't wanna be a part of your Bible study. I just got here. I'm a second semester in. I've got, I'm doing just fine. But I didn't wanna be rude. So I said, I tell you what, I'll come check out your Bible study. And I did. And over the next several weeks, as these guys invested in me and as they loved on me, they didn't pistol whip me with a Bible. They didn't tell me what they could see clearly, which was that the things I was pursuing we're not gonna satisfy. They just kept loving on me. And one day, as I was walking through the campus into the student union, I remember walking up the steps. Steps went up, back, and then into the union. And I remember thinking to myself, as I was processing, just God was working on my heart. I remember thinking, I think this thing is true. And all those seeds that my parents had been faithfully sowing for so many years, began to finally take root and God just flipped the switch. I don't know how else to explain it. The light came on and I realized that I was in a bit of trouble, but that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. That's why I've loved this series because it reminds me that I was once an outsider. Great reminder. Today, we're gonna wrap up this series and I think, frankly, don't tell JP and Adam, I think I got the best week. Uh, when they look at the, the things we get to talk about in this series, I, I can't believe I get to te teach on this topic. We're gonna be in Luke 23, and we're gonna look at Jesus as he's on the cross. And we're gonna see how Jesus interacts with really three groups of insiders. I wanna try and spend most of our time, if we can, on the last interaction he has. This is three paragraphs, just so you, just a little side note. When you read God's word, the basic unit of thought is not the verse. It's the paragraph. So don't study verses, study paragraphs, because that gives you the immediate context. We've got three paragraphs today, three movements in this passage we're gonna try and get through. And we're gonna see in Luke 23, verses 26 to 31, we're gonna see that the cross exclaims a warning. In 32 to 38, we're gonna see uh, how the cross exclaims forgiveness. And in 39 to 43, how the cross exclaims grace. And then what I'd like to do Zoom out a little bit. I wanna remind you 
of what is the punchline of this entire series as we wrap it up, which is that God loves outsiders. What I want you to hear from me today, what I want you to walk away with is this. The cross is the exclamation point on this sentence. God loves outsiders. Let me say it to you again. The cross is the exclamation point on the sentence that God loves outsiders. But here's the deal. If you've been in the church for a while, if you've gotten into your routine, if you've got your little Christian bubble, you may not be that interested in engaging outsiders because frankly, it can be messy. It can require time, effort, and energy. And we got a good thing. We like to keep the carpet clean, books on our bookshelf all squared away. And when you get into somebody's life who's racked and ravished by sin, who's a slave to their passions, it can be messy. And those guys, when I was a freshman in college, when I would stumble over myself and fall back into sin that had, been, that had owned me for so many years, they didn't, they didn't give up on me. They kept investing in me because that's what God calls us to do once we are moved from an outsider to a child of God. But I think a lot of us have just grown comfortable and we've stopped looking for the outsiders that God has sovereignty placed in our lives, in our workplaces, our family, our neighborhood, the places you hang out, the golf club, the gym. We're not looking because we just wanna go about our day. And I think we are missing a big part of what God calls us to. You ever noticed that there are certain people who always have, like, or have a higher propensity to have stories of, can you believe what God just did? Like those kind of stories? Those are the folks that are out there engaging the lost. They're, they're trying to figure out how can we take this person who doesn't know Jesus and who's pursuing things that we know are gonna lead to death, and how can we invite them to know the loving kindness of our Savior? I think we've forgotten, or we've grown cold, or we've grown comfortable. But if we wanna be like Jesus, if we wanna be a fully devoted follower of Christ, we've got to remember that the cross is the exclamation point on the sentence, God loves outsiders. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 23. Uh, what I'd like to do is I wanna read you the whole passage at one time. I tell people uh, frequently that we don't worship the Bible, the pages, the ink. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who has spoken to us and has given us his word. But you will not get to know the God who's given us his word if you're not spending time in the word. And so you should be abiding daily, not because you have to, but it's because that's how we get to know God. That's how we get to know Jesus. Man, I got to, as I've run back through Luke a couple times, I've been so encouraged by what Luke wrote. If you've, if you've never read Luke cover to cover or haven't been in a while, I encourage you, take some time and read Luke. Go carve out three hours. Get you a cup of coffee or a Topo Chico and just read through it front to back and just be blessed by what Luke writes, okay? Now, when, as we jump into verse 26, we are stepping right into the middle of a scene. It's like walking into a movie halfway through. So let me give you a little bit of context of what's going on. I think sometimes our familiarity of this passage does us a disservice. So let me remind you of what's happening. In Luke 22, the plot to kill Jesus has been put into motion by the religious leaders of the day. One of his 12 disciples, Judas, has decided to betray him. Jesus goes before the Father in Gethsemane and he prays. And he is, Lord, if you can take this cup, please, but not my will, but your will be done. And he sweats drops of blood, such as his stress. He is betrayed by that disciple. He is arrested. All of his friends abandon him. He's denied three times by one of the guys in his inner circle. He's mocked and he's beaten by the religious leadership. And then we get to chapter 23, where 
he is taken before Pilate, who declares him not guilty. Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and he ships him over to Herod Antipas, who happens to be in Jerusalem at that time. Herod Antipas finds no guilt in this man, but he mocks him and treats him with contempt, ships him back over to Pilate, who two more times declares him not guilty. And yet, the voices of the people prevailed. And Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified and releases Barabbas, a known killer. And now we pick up the story in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Movement number one, the cross exclaims a warning. Jesus is being taken to the skull, Golgotha. He's carrying his cross. It is likely the top beam of the cross, not the full cross. Let's not forget that Jesus was a carpenter. This was a strong man. He was used to working with his hands. In the previous 24 hours, he likely has not slept. He has likely not eaten. He has been beaten repeatedly. He has had his back laid open by the Roman guard as they whipped him. He has lost blood. Isaiah says that he would have been unrecognizable. He would have been beaten so badly. And so he needs some help carrying that cross. And so the Romans grabbed Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene's in modern day Libya, northern Africa. And Jesus, there's a group of women that are following and lamenting and mourning. And Jesus turns to these women and he says, daughters of Jerusalem. Let me stop right there. That phrase, daughters of Jerusalem, is stock language from your Old Testament. And what it's meant to let us know is, is that Jesus, while he's talking to these women who are immediately with him, that language refers to the nation. He is not just speaking to the women, he's speaking to the nation of Israel when he says, daughter of Jerusalem. He says, do not weep for me. Now, I gotta be honest. That phrase caught my attention because I was always told as a husband, 
hey, dude, don't ever tell your wife she can't cry. And yet here's Jesus telling these women not to cry for him. What's going on? So I did some, some studying, and I discovered that phrase, do not weep, is used three times in your New Testament, all three in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 7, 13, Jesus is going through a town, a village called Nain, and there's a funeral procession. There's a widow, and that widow's only son has died. And Jesus stops the procession, and he says, do not weep. And he raises that man from the dead. In Luke 8, 52, Jairus has a daughter. He's a ruler in the synagogue. He has a 13-year-old daughter. I have a 13-year-old daughter. That little girl got sick, and she died. When they get to the room where the woman with the little girl is dead, Jesus says to the people that are mourning, do not weep, for she is not dead, she is just sleeping. And Jesus raises that little girl from the dead. And now in Luke 23, Jesus is on his way to die. And he says to the women, do not weep for me. What's his point? Well, I think Luke wants us to remember that when Jesus is involved, death is not final. Death is not that big of a deal for the believer. It is the closing of your eyes in this earth and the beginning of eternity. When Christ is involved, death is not that big of a deal. But he does say, you're right to weep, but not for my death. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why would he say that? Because he understands that judgment is coming. The nation of Israel has rejected their king and whenever we reject God, it always brings death. And so Jesus says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. In fact, Jesus himself wept for the city. In Luke 19, as Jesus is approaching the city that he loves, he says, Luke tells us that when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Their mourning, they were right to mourn, they just had it misdirected. They should have been weeping for themselves because when you reject God, it always brings death. And Jesus says, you're rejecting me as your king and it is not gonna go well for you. He says, behold, the days are coming when you're gonna say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. That's a complete reversal of the biblical narrative that says children are always a blessing. You'd never tell a woman who's barren, blessed are you. And yet Jesus says a time is coming when that's gonna be what you're gonna utter. In fact, you're gonna wish that the mountains would fall on you. You're gonna wanna be buried alive. It's gonna be so bad. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you. Jesus is the green wood. Green wood is living. It's hard to burn. I'm not a camper, uh, but when I've tried to camp, I know that you can't burn living wood. And Jesus says, if they will burn green wood, what will they do to the dry wood? The dry wood is the nation of Israel in judgment. How quick will that wood go up in flames? Now, there's an interpretive challenge here we have to address. When Jesus says, if they do this when the wood is green, and so you should be asking, well, who is the they, right? 
And so in normal conversations, if I were to say to you, uh, I saw Ryan and Chris Howell in the parking lot. They were getting out of their car. You would know that the they in the second sentence refers to Ryan and Chris Howell, right? Well, in this, there's no immediate reference to point to who the they is. And so scholars and commentators over the decades, over the centuries, have debated who the they might be. Is it the Romans? Is it the Jews? Here's what I think it is. I think the they is a reference to God. And I think Luke is saying, I think Jesus is saying, if the father will do this to his living and perfect son, if he will apply judgment to him like this, what will he do when he comes back? How quickly will that wood go up? And Jesus' words came to fulfillment in 70 AD when Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem. So 70 AD, this passage took, you know, Jesus died, call it 30 AD. You've got 40 years. Jesus says, weep for yourselves and for your children. So you've got about a generation and a half that you're thinking about in terms of a time frame. And sure enough, 40 years later, Titus surrounds the city, puts a siege on it, builds a wall eight kilometers around the city to hem in the city. And over the course of many months, there was a brutal and bloody campaign to destroy the city. When the food supplies got low, there are accounts of people eating cow dung, of people eating hay. There are accounts of infanticide cannibalism within the walls of Jerusalem. Blessed are the barren and those who never bore and the breasts that never nursed. When the Jews would try to sneak out at night of the walled city to try and find food in the, in the surrounding areas, the Romans would capture them. And it is said that Titus crucified up to 500 Jews per day outside the city. 500 per day. Some of the Jews, as they attempted to escape from the city, swallowed some of their gold coins, some of their coins, thinking if we can get out of here, we'll at least have some money to get started. And when the Romans discovered that was what was happening, they began to disembowel them as they would come out of the city, as they caught them. This was a brutal campaign. Josephus writes that with the exception of a part of the Western Wall, which is still there today, and a couple of towers, the entire city was leveled, such that you would not have known a city had been there if you'd come up on it, just like Jesus said was gonna happen. The cross exclaims a warning. And God in his sovereignty has placed you, has placed me in our world, in our circumstances, to serve as a warning to others. When we see people who are pursuing the things that lead to death, we're called to raise our hand and say, that is not gonna work out well for you. It is not loving to be silent in the face of sin. We are there to proclaim a warning. I've had contact lenses for three decades. Some of you may be thinking, well, why are you wearing readers? Well, getting old is not that fun. So for three decades, I've had the same routine. I take my contacts out, last thing at night, I put them in first thing in the morning. Lather, rinse, repeat every day for three decades. Not too long ago, I got up one morning, got out of bed, got my contacts, squirted the solution to rinse it off, put the contact in my eye, and I promise you, it felt like somebody had stabbed me in the eye with an ice pick. And I pulled that contact out, and my eye was already bright red. <laughs> like, what did I do? And I went and got the box, and I discovered that no fewer than three warnings were on that box that said, this is contact soap. Do not put in your eyes. I looked at the bottle. Two spots on the bottle. Do not put directly in your eyes. They even put a red cap on the bottle to let you know, 
don't put this in your red eye, in your eyes. And I don't know how I missed it, those warnings. Never done it before, I certainly haven't done it since. But all these warnings, and I just walked right through it, and I ended up burning my eye. And I think what God wants us to remember is that there are warnings all around your life. If you do not know Jesus, you're here this morning, and this is a red cap warning for you. There's a warning, and you need to pay attention. The cross exclaims a warning. But the cross also exclaims forgiveness. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. They come to the place called the skull, Golgotha, the Aramaic term, Latin, Calvary. And they crucified the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One commentator wrote that their ignorance was not from a lack of knowledge. It was an erroneous view of God's activity. And because Jesus loved these people, he prays for them. And he asks the Father to forgive them. Who is this man that prays for the people that are killing him? I don't have a category for that, frankly. So deep was his love. There is not a shred of hypocrisy in Jesus. What do I mean by that? Luke 6. Jesus told his followers, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What kind of love would compel a man to do that? See, Jesus didn't view the Romans and the Jews as his enemies. He views them as lost sheep. And sheep that are lost need to be found. And so Jesus prays for them. If you've read your Watermark News this morning, there's a story in there about a friend of ours named Joseph who stole six figures worth of golf clubs from his owner of his company. And you read that story and you get to the punchline, you see that this owner forgives Joseph. That's crazy. People in this community would say, that owner is an idiot for offering forgiveness to that guy who stole from him. But that's what God's people do. They offer forgiveness. They mocked him, right? How would you expect people to respond to a God who loves like that, to a savior who's on the cross praying for you? You would expect, how would you respond to that humility? The people stood by, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him. They offered him sour wine. They said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. There's zero response to that kind of love from the people that were killing him. And they call for Jesus three times, save yourself. As if Jesus could not have saved himself. In Matthew's account of this, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come to arrest him, one of Jesus' knucklehead disciples decides to lop off the ear of one of the servants and Jesus turns to his disciples and says in Matthew 26, do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Don't miss this. 
Jesus wasn't up there because he didn't have the ability. He was up there because he saw the priority, that his death would be the mechanism by which lost men could be saved, including the lost men that were crucifying him. What's the takeaway? The cross exclaims forgiveness. This is no ordinary love. We want vengeance. We want justice. It's hard for us to even get our arms around that kind of love. We're, if we're honest, we would prefer that God smite our enemies. I get cut off in traffic and I'm ready just to go crazy, right? How different is Jesus? I'm a whole lot more like a guy named Gary Pluchet. See, in 1984, Gary Pluchet had a son named Jody, 11-year-old boy taking karate lessons from a man named Jeff Doucette. Come to find out, Doucette had been abusing this boy for well over a year. And in February of 1984, Jeff Doucette kidnaps this boy and takes him to California, where over the course of 10 days, he continued to abuse that boy. For some reason, Doucette allows Jody, this 11-year-old boy, to call his parents collect. And when they do, the police trace the call and they arrest him in, at a hotel outside of Los Angeles. Jody's reunited with his family. Doucette is arrested. And on March 16th, he's flown back from LA to Baton Rouge where he's gonna face trial for his crimes. And as the police are escorting Doucette through the airport, Gary Pluchet is there. He'd been tipped off by the TV by a TV reporter that that was when and where they were gonna be bringing Doucette through. And Gary Pluchet was wearing a white ball cap and sunglasses and he was talking on a payphone. And when they brought Doucette by, Gary Pluchet turned around and with a snub-nosed 38 caliber pistol full of hollow point bullets, he shot that man in the head from three feet away and killed him. Justice, vigilante, quick revenge. I think that's what's in our hearts sometimes. I have an 11-year-old son. I get it. Jesus did the opposite. He prays for his enemies. He prays for their forgiveness. That's what he calls us to do. And so the cross exclaims a warning. The cross exclaims forgiveness. And the cross exclaims grace. And this this is the good part of the message. If you've not been paying attention to this point, that's okay, pay attention now. This is the highlight of the passage. This is the highlight of the last five weeks. One of the criminals, verse 39, who hanged on the air, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not fear God. This is the first rational thing that anybody said in about three chapters. And it comes from the mouths of criminals. This man has learned something. Proverbs 1 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What has this man learned? Well, I'll tell you. He has learned that God exists and he is to be feared. He says we're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man declares, there's a confession of his guilt. 
There's a confession of the appropriateness of their punishment, that the wages of sin leads to death. He gets it. We're on the cross. We deserve to be here. But this man has done nothing wrong. There's a confession of the innocence of Jesus. And he said, Jesus, don't miss that. He calls Jesus by name. And that got my attention. And I asked myself, self, how often do people call Jesus his name? Address him as that. And I looked. In the Gospel of Luke, the name Jesus is recorded 106 times. Jesus went here. Jesus did this. Jesus did that. There are only five instances where somebody addresses Jesus by name. You want to know what happens? I'm going to tell you. Two instances are individuals who are demon-possessed. In Luke 4, there's a demon-possessed man in Capernaum. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus heals that man. In Luke 8, there's the Gerasene demoniac, which JP taught on a few weeks back. And he runs up to Jesus and says, Jesus, son of the most high God. And Jesus heals that man. There's two groups of people that need physical healing. In Luke 17, there are 10 lepers. And they see Jesus come by and they cry out, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And Jesus heals all 10 lepers. There's a blind beggar in Luke 18 who hears that Jesus is coming down the road and he gets to hollering, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he won't shut up. They finally bring him to Jesus and Jesus heals him. And then there's a man whose life has been ruined and racked with sin. And he's hanging next to Jesus on the cross. And he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus is gonna heal that man. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's acknowledging that there is a kingdom. That kingdom belongs to Jesus. He's the king there. And he's not gonna be there. Did you catch that? Three sentences uttered by this criminal on the cross. Impeccable theology. Here's what he says. In three sentences, this man has acknowledged that God exists, that he is to be feared, that Jesus was innocent, that Jesus is a king who's gonna have a kingdom and he's gonna reign on that throne, that he, this man, is a sinful man. He is unworthy to be there. He has a right understanding of the gospel. And he asks Jesus, remember me. And how do you suppose God responds to that kind of confession from that kind of man? Well, you don't have to wonder because Luke already told us in Luke chapter 15, three parables, parable of a lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, parable of a lost son. Actually, it's a parable of two lost boys. And at the end of each parable, all the parables are all the same. Something of value is lost, there's a search, that thing is found, and there's a celebration. Jesus tells us in Luke 15, after the sheep has been found, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need repentance. When that lost coin, one of 10 is found, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Luke 15, when that boy comes home, the father in the parable says, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. We know how God responds to repentant sinners, even criminals. So Jesus says to this man, truly I say to you, truly, literally, amen, verily, verily, count it as done. 
This man has addressed Jesus as king, and now Jesus responds to him as a king. I tell you, I say to you, second person singular, Jesus is talking to this individual on this day who has confessed who Jesus is. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There will be no delay. I'm not just gonna remember you. You're gonna be with me, and not in some future kingdom when I come back, but today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, the Greek word, it's a, it's a carryover from a Persian word. And it's the idea of a walled garden. In your Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word used in Genesis 2 for the Garden of Eden. This man's destination has changed. He will be in the garden of God with the Son of God. The man asks to be remembered, and Jesus gives him so much more. Because that's what grace does. Grace always gives more. Grace is always extravagant, always. A few weeks ago, I ordered some pizzas for my crew. We eat, as you can imagine, we go through a lot of pizza. And I went to this pizza shop, and I said, hey, I'd like a couple more of those little tubs of garlic butter. It's like liquid gold in my house. <laughs> and I heard her go back there, and I heard the woman behind the counter say, you make sure he pays for those tubs of garlic butter. So this gal comes to the cash register, she looks at me, she says, I'm supposed to make you pay for this garlic butter, but go on, take it. It's grace, <laughs> extravagant, more than you expect. And Jesus is like, you get an eternity of garlic butter with me. Grace is always extravagant. That's what it does. Now, you might be like me. You might look at this story and say, now hang on. This guy on this cross has ruined his life. He's done something so heinous that the Roman government decided to crucify him. And you're telling me he gets in, skin of his teeth, his deathbed? There's no baptism. There's no communion. There's no giving. There's no helping old ladies across the street. There's no legacy of good works. And this guy gets in? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you because none of that stuff saves. Spurgeon wrote that the thief upon the cross was justified the moment he turned the eye of faith to Jesus. And Paul, the apostle Paul, the aged, after years of service, was no more justified than was the thief with no service at all. We are accepted, uh, we are today accepted and beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted at the bar of God. Now, I do think when this man got into paradise, and I think this will be the case for us. I think he could see what his life could have been. And I don't think there was guilt or shame over that because there is no guilt or shame when you're in the presence of Jesus and sin's been removed. But I think there was a sense of regret of what he wasted his life and what it could have been. God, as we say around here, is not trying to rip us off. He's trying to set us free. And this man wasted his life. Don't waste your life. And yeah, that's a little offensive if we're honest. But that's the point of the gospel. And if we trip over that, if we can't get our arms around the fact that on his deathbed, this man found himself in paradise, then we don't understand the gospel. It's open to all people. It doesn't matter if your life is racked with pride or people pleasing, laziness or legalism, gossip or greed, alcohol or anger, envy or enmity, covetousness or callousness, gluttony or gambling, 
insecurity or impurities, racism or rebellion. It's not focused on what you've done. The gospel's focused on what Jesus has done on your behalf. It doesn't matter. God is not stressed out or overwhelmed or caught off guard by the garbage you bring to the cross. That's the point. It doesn't matter if you had an abortion or you paid for the abortion. It doesn't matter if you're disrespectful to your spouse or completely unengaged with your kids. If you cut corners at work last week or you cut lines of cocaine last night, doesn't matter if you're materialistic or a murderer, if you're overwhelmed by thoughts of suicide or consumed by thoughts of sex, whether you cut yourself or curse others, whether your lips are full of lies or your heart is full of lust, if you're jealous of others or jaded with God, if you're a thief who steals like Joseph in our Watermark News or a troublemaker who provokes, if you're trapped by pornography or enslaved by your possessions, no matter, your, no matter what your what abouts, the cross is the exclamation point. Listen to me. That God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on your behalf, on my behalf, so that we wouldn't live today as an outsider. We wouldn't spend our eternity as an outsider. That's the point of the gospel. And it's all over your Bible. The whole New Testament screams this message. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the point of the gospel. Read your Bibles, it's all over the place. Yeah, we can clap for that, heck yeah. So what do we do here? What do we do with this? Well, some of you out there, you've just been walking by warnings your whole life. And I'm begging you, today is a red cap morning. Don't miss the red cap. Rejecting God always leads to death. Some of us need to begin to take steps to extend some forgiveness. And it's hard. It's hard to extend forgiveness. I'm, I've got a scenario right now with two buddies that I'm, we're struggling, the three of us, to forgive each other. There's misunderstanding, there's hurt, there's a loss of trust, and it's hard. Some of us who, by God's grace, have heeded the warning and received the gift, we need to continue to keep an eye on the outsiders. One of the greatest joys about getting to be an elder here is the front row seat I get to sit in every week and watch as you go out into our community, as you bring outsiders in. Every week, your story is a life change. As God is using you, coworkers, neighbors, estranged family members, every week, and it's such a joy to get to see it, to get to be a part of it. Let's go back for a sec to 
that story about Gary Pluchet. Let's, let's rework the story a little bit. Let's just pretend for a sec that, that he had not gone on his own and executed justice on his own. Let's assume that he had allowed Jeff Doucette to come back to Baton Rouge to face trial for his crimes. And let's assume that that man would have been found guilty. And let's pretend that the judge, the jury came back and gave him the death sentence. He was gonna die for his crimes. And on the day that Doucette was formally scheduled to be sentenced, let's pretend that Gary Pluchet walks into the courtroom and says, Judge, I want him to go free. Not just free, I want his record wiped clean. I don't want there to be any mention of this on his record. I want him to be completely expunged. And the judge would say, I'm sorry. Crime's been committed. Sentence has been handed down. Justice needs to be served. And what if Gary Pluchet at that point walked over to his 11-year-old son and said, Judge, I wanna give you my son in place of Doucette. I want, put him on death row. Execute him, let this man go free. That's crazy. That's hard for me to even make that story up. And yet, that's what the Father did for us on the cross. We who curse God, mocked him with our words and with our actions, the Father says, take my son, let the guilty go free. The broken body, the shed blood of our, of our Savior. Justice had to be served. Don't miss this. God loved the world, but he had to deal with the sin. And he did on the body of Jesus. There was an 11th century rabbi who wrote these words. And boy, are they appropriate. He wrote, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is the love of God for you, for me, and for the outsiders in our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithful servant, Luke. Thank you for the way that he has recorded this unspeakable act of love on the cross. I pray this morning for my friends in here, folks that have come in who don't know you, have, who haven't heeded the warning, who are looking at red caps and just walking right by. Would you today quicken the heart of some that they might confess their guilt, their need for you, that they might find themselves trusting in the finished work of your son on the cross. Father, for those of us that you have called your own, that you have moved from outsiders to children, would you convict our hearts? Would you help us to see others as lost sheep that you want to bring in? Would you use us today? In Jesus' name, amen.